We were just having one of those moments that I know you have at your house. We were rating one remote for batteries for the microphone so it would work. But we got it done, so here we are. Hey, it's great to be with you this morning. I'm glad that everybody is here. Looking forward to this time. I hope everybody enjoyed your extra hour this morning. I would ask, but I don't want to embarrass anybody, how many people showed up here an hour early this morning because they didn't remember to set their clocks back, but it got you here early anyway, so that's a good thing, I guess. I want to remind you about what's going to happen next week. Next week is our Pack the Pulpit Sunday. This is a very important Sunday in the life of this church. This is the Sunday when we bring food and literally try to pack this pulpit with uh, non-perishable food so that we can restock our pantry and also fill up a bunch of food boxes that will be delivered throughout our community soon after next week. Uh, You will find on the way out there will be some people who will be handing out bags that look like this. On the bag you'll find a sheet that gives you an idea of what you should bring to help us pack the pulpit next week. But I don't want you to feel restricted by this bag. It's decent size, but it's not big enough. So fill this bag and fill other bags and bring cases and, you know, we'll get dollies at the back, whatever we need to do to bring all the food up so we can pack the pulpit next week. And next week we'll rejoice together as we see how generous you guys have been so that we can be generous with the community around us so that they can see the love of Christ through us. So please don't forget, next week is our Pack the Pulpit Sunday. Also, I want to give you a Project 9K update That's our Bible reading challenge here at Netherwood Park. We're seeing how many books of the Bible we can read in 2017 collectively as a congregation. And so far to date, we have read 4,414 books of the Bible. So good job. Keep up the good work. Keep reporting the books that you have read. And we'll finish strong here with our Sprint to the Finish, which if you're in the Sprint to the Finish, you've started in 2 Corinthians And I know you're enjoying that that's a kinder, gentler Paul to the church in Corinth versus the way he was in 1 Corinthians. We have this Bible reading challenge because we want to encourage everybody to be deeply immersed in God's Word. Our theme for the year is that we want to be people who not only know the Word but live the Word. Live the Word out in the world in which we walk. And in order to live that Word, we need to know the Word So part of what we want to encourage everybody to do is be a regular student of the Bible. Make that a part of your daily routine, reading God's Word. Because the Bible, the Word of God, is powerful. Something else we want you to know about this church, we not only believe that the Bible is important and reading the Bible is important, we want you to know that we believe prayer is important. Prayer is powerful and effective. We are a praying church. We spend a lot of time in prayer. And we would like to pray for you. If you have something in your life or in the life of someone you know and love that you know needs to be lifted up to God in prayer, won't you let us know so that we can be a part of that? We would love to join with you and lift your request up to God. In order to do that, we need to know what your request is. So if you would pull out one of the green cards that you'll find in front of you, that is our communication card. On one side, you'll see prayer request. If you'd fill in your prayer request there and then drop it in one of our collection boxes, tomorrow morning we'll send out those prayer requests to almost 400 people who are waiting to pray for you. So please take advantage of that. You can find two collection boxes at the very back of the auditorium, and you can find a third one through these double doors. Prayer is powerful, and it's effective. Also, we need you to know that we are a baptizing church. We are a church that believes in the power of baptism. We believe that it's in baptism that we join with Jesus Christ in his death, 
his burial, and his resurrection. I believe it's in baptism that we, like Christ, rise up to a new life as changed people to walk alongside Christ, to walk in his footsteps. We believe it's in baptism that we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. So if you believe that Jesus is the Christ and you haven't been baptized, we'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love to start that conversation. So if you haven't been baptized and you'd like to know more about it or if you have questions about it, you'd like to talk to someone about it, use the same green card. If you turn it on over to the back, you'll see next steps. If you'll fill out your contact information, check the box that says, I'd like to talk to someone about baptism. One of us will contact you right away. We'll start that conversation. The final thing I want you to know is that we believe in the power of the church. We believe in the power of the church universal, but we also believe in the power of the church local. We believe that God gave us the church for a reason. God works through his church. God works through us individually, but he works in mighty ways and powerful ways through us collectively. Together we are much stronger, much more effective, much better grounded together than we ever could be alone. So if you've been attending Netherwood for a while and you haven't yet let us know that you'd like to be a part of this church, we'd love to have that conversation as well. All you need to do is check the box on that same card that says, I'd like to talk to someone about being a member of this church, and one of us will call you and we'll start that conversation so that you can also be a part of this congregation at Netherwood Park. We would love to have you be a part of what we're doing here. So please take advantage of those things. I want you to do that this morning. Well, we're in a sermon series from the book of Romans. And we're working our way through that letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome several thousand years ago. And in that letter, Paul's focus is on the power of the gospel. And so far as we've been working through Romans, we've seen Paul shine his light onto the dark deeds of the godless and wicked pagans. And he's shown that the gospel has the power to bring salvation to even them. And that was a pretty comfortable conversation for us to have. We didn't have to shield our eyes from Paul's light because he wasn't shining that light on us. It was shining on they. It was shining on them. But then Paul kind of played a trick on us. He shifted the focus of his light. He shifted the focus of his light onto religious people. And things became kind of uncomfortable then. Because the light was squarely in our eyes. The light was no longer shining on they and them. But now it was shining on you and it was shining on me. It was shining on religious people. And when Paul shined that light on us, it revealed our darkness as well. So we felt that discomfort of the light shining in our eyes. To mix my metaphors, we saw that Paul kind of threw cold water on our self-satisfied and self-righteous feelings. Those feelings we might have when we're comparing ourselves to the darkness of they and them. And we heard Paul say, we're really no different than them. Sure, our darkness may not be as obvious as their darkness, but that doesn't give us the authority to point to their sins as worthy of God's judgment, while at the same time excluding excluding our sins, excusing our sins, sins that are in our own lives. 
In fact, it's doing that. It's condemning others while excusing ourselves. That's what allows us to hang on to our self-righteousness. And that's what allows us to hang on to our sin. And the gospel calls on us to give up both of those things. To give up our self-righteousness and to give up our sin. And today we're going to see Paul make a subtle shift. It's a subtle shift with his light. He's going to shine his light on a subset of religious people. He's going to shine his light on the religious Jews. But before he does that and before we dig into that, let's pray. Now, Father, you are so good to us. And, Father, you gave us Jesus Christ when, Father, we were far from deserving. And, Father, you have revealed yourself to us through your word. But more importantly, Father, you have revealed yourself to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And, Father, we know that we fall far short of what you would have us be and what we want to be. So, Father, we thank you for the grace that came through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Father, so that we can enter into your presence as holy people. And, Father, continue to be with us. Father, continue to help us walk in Jesus' steps. And, Father, help us not to point our fingers at they and them, but instead, Father, point our lives to they and them so they can see us living and see you living in us. And we pray this through the name of Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Well, there's an old Hans Christian Andersen story that some of you may remember. It's called The Emperor's New Clothes. It's a fairly short story. It's about an extremely vain emperor. And he cares about nothing more than his clothes. His clothes are his passion. His clothes are his identity. So it makes him very ripe to a pitch that's delivered by a group of con men who come to him. And these con men come to him posing as skilled weavers, making makers of cloth and makers of clothing. And the con men come to the emperor and they promise to make the emperor the finest suit of clothes that have ever been made. And the cost is extravagant, but the cost is worth it. Because the clothes they promise to make will be unlike any clothes anyone has ever worn. Unlike any clothes that anybody has seen before. They appeal to the emperor's vanity. And what makes the promised clothes so extraordinary is the fabrics that are used to construct them. You see, the con men convince the emperor that they'll be using a fabric that is invisible. Invisible to anyone who's unfit for their position and invisible to anyone, to quote Hans Christian Andersen, who is just hopelessly stupid. So only the fit, only the intelligent will be able to see and appreciate the emperor's new clothes. So the con men go to work. They go to work on the new clothes and the emperor waits impatiently. And whenever the emperor can't stand the suspense any longer, he sends some of his royal ministers to check on the weaver's progress. And when they visit the weaving room, the con men are there, and they're diligently going through the motions of weaving fabric. 
And of course, the ministers can't see any fabric, but they still take a glowing report back to the emperor. These clothes are going to be beautiful. The fabric is gorgeous. They take that report back because they don't want to appear like they're unfit for their position, or even worse, appear to be hopelessly stupid. Well, finally, the big day arrives, and the emperor's clothes are finally competed. They're finally ready. And the con men come in, and they go through the motions of clothing and dressing the emperor, clothing him in clothes that he can't see. But the emperor doesn't say anything about it because he doesn't want to appear to be unfit for his position, or worse, appear as hopelessly stupid. And then the emperor marches around his palace and then he goes and parades through the town to show off his remarkable new clothes to all of his subjects. And as you might expect, none of the townspeople can see any clothes because they don't exist, but no one says anything because they don't want to appear to be unfit for their position or even worse, hopelessly stupid So instead, everybody compliments the emperor on his new clothes. But then a young child, too young to be concerned about what other people might think about him, he's the one who finally speaks up and says what needed to be said all along. But the emperor has no clothes. Well, today we're going to see Paul shine his light on the religious Jews. There are people who thought they had the finest religious clothes. People who were certain that their history and their ancestry, people who were convinced that their religious activity and their moral moral superiority clothed them in the finest of righteous clothes. See, the religious Jews were convinced that their fine religious clothes were going to save them. But first the prophets... And then Jesus and now Paul, they're the ones who lift their voices to say, but you Jews have no clothes. Unless we be tempted to once more get comfortable in our pews, now that the light is shining on somebody else, I think it's important for us to recognize and for us to acknowledge that we probably have a whole lot more in common with those first century religious Jews than we would care to admit. I don't know about you, but I often act as if my religious history and my religious ancestry and my religious activity and my moral superiority to them, I often act as if that clothes me in the very finest of religious clothes. I act like those fine clothes are going to save me. But Paul's going to remind me and he's going to remind you and he's going to remind other Christians that our self-righteous clothes really aren't clothes at all. Paul is literally going to expose us. He's going to show us that being morally decent and religiously active isn't what makes us righteous. It isn't what clothes us. In fact, he's going to tell us that being lulled into this false sense of religious security, 
thinking that we are clothed when really we're not. He's going to tell us, he's going to show us that having a false religious confidence is exactly the thing that can keep us from getting to the very heart of the matter. So let's listen to Paul. Chapter 2 and verse 17 of Romans. Paul says, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul's talking about false religious confidence. See, it's dangerous to have confidence in things that have no power. It's foolish to have faith in things that can't save. It's tragic to take pride in our religious clothing when that clothing only leaves us completely exposed. So Paul focuses on two dangerous Areas. There are two danger zones for the Jews then and for Christians now. And the first thing that Paul does, he highlights the danger in thinking that you are okay, thinking that you are safe, thinking that you are righteous because of the things that God has given you. The Jews were proud people. They were proud of their ancestry. They were proud of their history. They were proud of their status as God's chosen people. But Paul says, says, your pride is dangerous. Your pride in your history and your ancestry is dangerous because it leads you to have a false sense of religious security. He says, your pride in your nationality is dangerous. Being part of the Jewish nation, that's a privilege that has been given to you. But that privilege doesn't buy you religious security. Being a Jew didn't provide religious security then. Any more than the privilege of being a citizen of the so-called Christian nation of America saves us now. There's no saving power in nationality. And Paul says, your pride in your religious knowledge is even dangerous. He says, you know, possessing the law and knowing the law, that's a privilege that's been given to you Jews. But there's no religious security in merely possessing the law, in merely knowing the law. There's only security in obeying the law. Having copies of the law in their synagogues, that didn't provide religious security then 
any more than the privilege of having multiple copies of the Bible in multiple versions in multiple places in our houses and on our electronics provides us saving power now. There is no saving power in just having the Bible or even in just knowing the Bible. But Paul takes it even a step further. And he says, even your pride in being an expert, in being a teacher of the law, even pride in being an acknowledged master of the text, even that is dangerous. He says, when you take pride in being an expert, when you take pride in being a teacher, he says, you're taking pride in a gift that's been given to you, a privilege that's been given to you. But there's no security, there's no saving power in expertise. Being able to expound on the nuances of the law didn't provide religious security then any more than the privilege of advanced Bible degrees and preaching positions and teaching positions can save us now. There's no saving power even in the mastery of the text. Then Paul ups the ante. And he says, even your pride in your superior moral judgments is dangerous. He says, just because you behave better than the Gentiles who haven't had the privilege of knowing the law, that doesn't provide religious security. It doesn't provide religious security then any more than feeling morally superior to our immoral neighbors provides security now. There's no saving power in feeling morally superior to immoral people. And finally, Paul says, it's dangerous. It's dangerous even to take pride in your superior vision, your superior religious vision. Paul says, that's a privilege you've been given by God. In the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets reveal mysteries to you that can't be seen by those who don't have those same privileges. And just because you can see things in God's word that people who don't know God's word can't see, that doesn't provide religious security. It didn't provide religious security then any more than seeing things about Jesus Christ that people who have never met Jesus Christ don't see now. That doesn't provide security to us now. Those are privileges. All five of those things are wonderful privileges. Privileges given to the Jews. But those very privileges deluded the Jews. Deluded them into thinking that they were wearing clothes when actually they were completely exposed. The Jews were deluded into thinking that they were acceptable to God because of the privileges that he had given them. And the same dangers exist for us. You see, whenever we move from the privileges that God has given us to pride in those gifts, we're moving from appropriate humility in the face of God's generosity to self-righteous arrogance in clothes that actually leave us dangerously exposed. And they not only leave us dangerously exposed, but that self-righteous 
security in clothes that don't actually cover us in salvation, those very same things lead God's name to exposure, lead God's name to blasphemy among those who don't know God. See, that's what Paul's saying. When the Jews bragged about the law, when they preached about the law, when they accused others of being evil for breaking the law and then turned around and broke the law themselves, the probably inevitable result was that God's name was insulted. God's name was held in contempt by those around them. A Greek writer, Tacitus, said this about the Jews of that time. He wrote, among themselves, their honesty is inflexible. Their compassion is quick to move. But to all others, they show the hatred of antagonism. See, the Gentiles then sensed the Jews' superior feelings. The Gentiles saw their hypocrisy. And as a result, they blasphemed the Jews' God. They concluded that the Jews' God had no clothes. And that's far from just a problem way back then. See, we Christians are now certainly not immune from that same danger. The result of false religious pride now is that God's name is now blasphemed among they and among them. Because we disgrace the truth, because we dishonor the gospel, the gospel that we've been entrusted with, the gospel that we've been privileged to have. It's dishonored, it's disgrace. God is blasphemed when people see that we have self righteous pride, when they see our hypocrisy. See, we can't think that our neighbors won't sense our superior feelings. We can't think that our neighbors won't see our hypocrisy. And when they sense that and when they see that, we can't think that they also won't conclude that our God has no clothes. So false religious confidence and false religious pride is dangerous. When we succumb to self-righteous arrogance because of the privileges that God has given us, we put our souls in mortal danger. And we cause God's holy name to be blasphemed. And if that wasn't enough danger, Paul next alerts us to a second danger. Another danger of false religious confidence. It's the danger of thinking we're okay because of our religious affiliation. Listen to Paul's warning to the Jews because it's a warning to us. Verse 25. He says, Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. 
No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. And such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. False religious confidence in affiliation. And for the Jews, their false confidence was their affiliation with Abraham. And that affiliation could be physically observed. It could be physically observed in circumcision. At the tender age of eight days old, all Jewish males were circumcised. Just as Abraham had been commanded thousands of years before. Circumcision marked the covenant between Abraham and God. Circumcision identified the Jews as God's covenant and his chosen people. But what was intended to be a physical symbol of love for God from the heart and soul and mind had become distorted. Distorted to the point that the Jews believed that circumcision was a guarantee, not a symbol. In fact, by Paul's time, the Jews had come to believe that circumcision secured salvation. It guaranteed salvation. In fact, there were a number of rabbis who taught that no circumcised male would ever see hell. No matter how egregious their sins. No matter how corrupt their life. No matter how corrupt their morals. There was even one popular belief among some rabbis that said Abraham himself would be stationed at the gates of hell to prevent any Jew from entering there. Again, no matter how evil their deeds. The Jews had false confidence. They said, we're okay because we bear the mark of Abraham. We've been circumcised. What a shame that is. What a shame it is because circumcision was meant to be a a beautiful thing. It was meant to be like wearing a wedding ring, like a wedding ring between God and his people. Think about it. Does a wedding ring guarantee fidelity? Does a wedding ring guarantee faithfulness? Well, of course not. We know that. It's It's a symbol of a pledge that's been taken. When I got married, I took the pledge. I said, I am yours and only yours. And Kathy said, and you are mine and only mine. But the wedding ring didn't magically make everything happen. Imagine this conversation if you can. Imagine a man coming home to his wife and confronted with something that he had done, said, well, yeah, it's true. I had an affair with her, but it's okay. Everything's okay because I never stopped wearing my wedding ring through the whole time. How would that be received? See, the equivalent is, sure, I lived an evil life, but it's all okay. It's all okay because I never stopped being circumcised through the entire time. Circumcision was of great value. But only if one understood and lived out its intended significance. A ring that symbolizes I am yours and only yours. That only has value when I live its intended significance. When I am hers and only hers. 
So Paul says to the Jews, circumcision alone doesn't justify you. He says, you must also live a life that matches the profession that was made. You must live a circumcised life. And then Paul really gets personal. He says, you know what? He says, you know those people out there who are uncircumcised that you look down on? If they are faithful to the law, they are better off than a man who has been circumcised and who doesn't keep the law. They're better than a circumcised child of Abraham who hasn't been faithful. In effect, what Paul's doing is he's telling the Jews that Abraham is not going to be at the gates of hell to save you just because your father had you circumcised when you were eight days old. That's what he's telling the Jews. What's he telling us? We don't put our faith in circumcision, do we? Well, of course not. So what's the lesson for us? Well, I think Paul invites us to examine what religious affiliations we might be placing false hope in. Do we feel secure because we were raised in the church? Do we feel secure because our granddad was an elder in the church? Do we feel secure because our church has the right name over its door? Do we feel secure because we have a baptismal certificate tucked into our Bible? See if this paraphrase of Paul's words doesn't make some sense. Verse 28. A person is not a Christian if he is only one outwardly. Nor is baptism merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Christian if they are one inwardly. And baptism is baptism of the heart by the Spirit, not by a written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Baptism is an important thing. Baptism is a beautiful thing. And it's of great power and it's of great value if we live out its intended significance. When we not only say as we go into the water, I belong to Jesus and only Jesus, but if we actually live as if we belong to Jesus and only Jesus. And that's where true confidence comes from. It doesn't come from an outward show of being religious. It comes from an inward transformation of the heart and the soul and the mind. Confidence doesn't come from our father's commitment to have us circumcised when we were eight days old. But it comes from a commitment to submit our hearts to Jesus for his work, for his transformation. Paul's saying true confidence comes from true circumcision. And true circumcision isn't done by the hands of men. True circumcision is done by Jesus Christ. Paul put it this way in another letter he wrote. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. Paul says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Now listen to this. 
He says, in him you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. True circumcision. True circumcision is done by Christ. True confidence comes through Christ. True circumcision is done by Christ in baptism through faith in the saving power of God. That's the good news of the gospel. And true confidence. True confidence comes in knowing that the same God who raised Jesus from the dead can circumcise our humble hearts and raise us from the dead to make us alive with Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. No wonder Paul isn't ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. Let's pray. Father, we open our hearts to you and your work. Father, circumcise our hearts. Transform us from the inside out. Father, make it where the religious things that we do are mirrored by what's in our hearts and our minds and our souls. Father, make us like you. Make us like Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for giving us the confidence that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So let's end our time together by standing and worshiping our God. The God who is circumcising our hearts and the God who raised us from the dead. Let's stand. Let's sing. Say your life, O shepherd.